And so you'll have to forgive me. I have a cold, so I've lost a part of my range of voice. So I'm going to be down here for most of it. So December 17th, 1903. Does anybody know what happened that day? What was that? The Wright Brothers, that's right. Yeah, I was expecting that nobody would get it, and I was ready to say, yeah, it's okay. I wouldn't have gotten it if I didn't read it, just read it either, but very good, yeah. Yeah. So December 17, 1903 is the date that Orville and Wilbur Wright had their first successful flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Before that day, our only concept of flight was simply to lift an object into the air with a balloon, basically making it lighter than air. Um, so on that day, they sent a telegram to their dad, super excited about that, and their siblings back home in Dayton, Ohio. And so um, they said in that telegram, success, four flights Thursday morning. Wind started, 21-mile wind started from level. A lot of this makes no sense. I'm giving it word for word from the telegram. <laughs> uh, engine power alone, average speed through air, 31 miles per hour, longest run, 57 seconds. Inform the press will be home for Christmas. So they were adamant that that news break first in their hometown and nowhere else. So their brother, their older brother, Lauren, he ran that news to the newspaper, to the Associated Press at the Dayton Journal. And what do you think the headline was the next day? Stores are filled with Christmas shoppers. They still get flack for that one. The editor had rejected the story completely. He chose to publish a mundane story about Christmas shopping rather than to share the groundbreaking achievement that would change the world. He totally missed the greater story. Now, another newspaper did take on the story. They're called the Virginia Pilot. They somehow got wind of this telegram, but they couldn't confirm any of the details with the Wright brothers, so they just decided to fill in their own. They made up a story about a plane that was lifted with one propeller and like, projected through the air with another. So they got that story completely wrong. They completely missed the reality that had taken place. And lastly, another local newspaper called the Dayton Daily News ran the story. But they buried it on page 8. And they called the Wright brothers emulators of the great Santos Dumont. And that was a guy who worked with blimps. And again, their achievement is so much different from just lifting an object into the air. It's just a totally different way of flying. So it's not just the papers that missed it, though. The U.S. government was offered the first deal to work with the Wright brothers, to be the first government that had an airplane, but they casually turned it down. It was actually European countries that took the first step in making negotiations with the Wright brothers to get an airplane. Of course, the U.S. did join in later, but that was after Europe had well been into the process of working with them. So the Dayton Journal, the Virginia Pilot, the Dayton Daily News, the U.S. government... They all got it wrong. They all missed the greatness of what had just taken place. So what causes this? How does this happen? What's the pattern behind all these failures? In all these instances, there's a clear lack of knowledge, belief, and action. We miss great things because we don't believe they're true, or because we don't know enough to understand them, or because we don't take advantage of the opportunity at hand. So we're going to see that pattern today in our text. Only the examples I just used are going to seem pretty innocent compared to what goes on with the encounters that Jesus has today. So 
So we're in Mark chapter 12 today, verses 13 through 34. And because of the snow, Clint never got to share his great message that he was going to share with us. So I'm going to do a quick recap of what that might, would have been so that you just have a little bit of background of like where we are in the story. So Jesus had just gone and he'd cleansed the temple. He turned over tables. He kicked out uh, corrupt merchants and money changers and the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders, the religious leaders of their day. They came to him and they asked him, where do you get the authority to do that? And he tells them this incriminating parable that basically indicts them as God rejectors. He basically tells them, you're part of a really long history in Israel of people who hate God and have rejected him and his prophets. And they have a problem with that. So long story short, they have a problem with Jesus because they have a problem with God. And they have a problem with God because they have a problem with Jesus. So they were outraged to the point that they wanted to just arrest him right there. But because there were massive crowds that had gathered to see Jesus, they were too scared to do it. This is all on Tuesday of the Passion Week or the Holy Week, the week that's leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, because of their failed encounter with Jesus, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders, they sent some some, uh, people to try to trap Jesus in his words. Maybe they did it so that they could get the crowd to turn on them. Maybe they could arrest him if he said something wrong. And today we're going to see three encounters that emerge from that and where Jesus is asked a question and he gives an answer. Each question reveals that the asker is missing the greater thing. So as we progress through these encounters, we're going to look for the greater responsibility, the greater reality, and the greater rule. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We'll get started in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders who confronted Jesus about his authority sent some Pharisees and some Herodians to try to trick him into saying something incriminating. In this case, they're asking if it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this isn't, some, this isn't the same as if like, we're asking, is it right to pay taxes to the U.S. government? It's important to know that Rome was an occupying force in Israel. The tax they're talking about is the poll tax, which was due once a year, and it was one denarius per year, which is basically one day's wage per year. So it's not a gigantic tax. But it wasn't the amount of the tax that bothered them. They hated it because each year when they turned in that tax, it was a reminder that they were dominated by Rome. So let's take a step back real quick, and and let's remember who the players are that we have on this scene. Because sometimes when you're reading a long story, you can get lost and you need to go back and read and figure out who, who are we dealing with just so we can picture what's going on. So they're still in the temple. And at this point, Jesus is there. We have the Pharisees. We've got the Herodians. And we've got the scribes in the mix too. And then we also have the crowd. So the scribes, just to give a background on them, they're just the Bible experts of the day. They're going to come up later, and uh, we'll, we'll get more into who they are. Um, but these crowds in the temple have amassed to see Jesus because he's causing all this commotion. 
And remember that the only reason Jesus didn't get arrested in, in the past story is that the crowds were there and they feared the crowds. So this is the perfect audience if you want to trap Jesus and ask him about paying taxes. They have a mixed crowd. They've got zealots who hated the tax. They actually tried to form an uprising some years later and then got crushed by Rome. Then they've got the um, Pharisees who are sort of in the middle, like they are resistant to pay the tax, but they will pay the tax. And then they have the Herodians who are associated with King Herod, who is said to be a puppet king for the Roman government. And so if Jesus is going to say something negative about the tax, he's surely going to get arrested because they're going to rat him out. So this plan to trap Jesus should work with no problem. No matter how he answers, somebody's going to be outraged. Maybe the zealots will form a mob and, and attack him and just you know beat him and drag him out of the city. Or the Herodians will just arrest him, rat him out. So what does he do? Let's look at his answer in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I just think Jesus has this amazing ability to take control of a situation. First of all, he's not fooled by their hypocrisy. And he knows that they're obviously lying when they call him teacher and say that they believe that he teaches the truth in the way of God. He's basically saying, if you really knew that, why would you test me? And then he commands them to bring him a denarius. He doesn't answer their question. He gives them an order. I just think that's amazing. Let's pick it up in verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians and even the crowd are concerned about their responsibility when it comes to paying this tax. This is obviously not the first time this was talked about. Uh, this was probably a commonly talked about thing in Israel. That's why they're bringing it to Jesus to, uh, to trap him. It's a hotbed issue. But instead of answering black and white, Jesus points to the greater responsibility. So when Jesus asks for this coin and he looks at it, what he would have seen on one side would have been the face of the emperor, and the abbreviated words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, or even son of God. And the other side would have, said, would have been inscribed high priest. Uh, this is what the typical denarius said in Jesus' day. And so those words were blasphemy to Israel. The image was blasphemy to Israel. It was a graven image of a god. It was an idol. It was a violation of God's commandment. Even so... This money and this tax imposed by an occupying force were just a simple civil obligation. And in the scheme of what Jesus is talking about, it's the lesser thing, the lesser concern, the lesser responsibility. The greater responsibility is to give to God what's God's. So what does that mean? I mean, to be honest, when I first read that, I just kind of sounds like a pithy one-liner. You know, I think I've even heard it casually said before, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's, you know. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. But Jesus is an expert at saying great things with few words. 
So let me first tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that God has no dealings with the things of earth. And he's not saying that this tax has nothing to do with God. Or leave God out of it. God's only concern is godly things. When we think that, like it's probably our Western mind thinking of like separation of church and state, leave God out of like civil affairs and, you know, keep those things separate. But that's not what Jesus is saying. God is involved in the lesser things. In fact, Paul says in Romans 13 that God puts the authorities in place for our protection. He even says that we should pay taxes. April 15th is coming up. (laughs) So what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's pointing to the greater responsibility. He asks, whose likeness is on this coin? Caesar? Then pay it back to Caesar. And when he said, give to God what's God's, we should be asking, what's that? What's the parallel here? Where is God's image stamped? So Genesis 1 says, God created humanity in his image. Jesus says, render yourself to God. Not just what you need to do to satisfy Caesar, but you need to ask, is God satisfied with me? Am I rebelling against God? Jesus is saying, God has creative rights over his creation. And think about this. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. They're standing in front of God himself in human form, the perfect image of God. And they're lying to him about how much they adore him, attempting to trap him so that he's arrested, mobbed, or killed. They've got much bigger things to worry about than paying the poll tax. Their hypocrisy before Jesus reveals that their adoration of God himself is false. Jesus says, you're missing it. You're missing the greater responsibility. You're missing me. So how often do we make the lesser the greater? How often do we miss God because we're consumed with our own obsession with controversies? I mean, there's no end to controversy in the news I've seen Christians' Facebooks just consumed with political controversy. If not that, then maybe it's our own ambitions. I've fallen for that one, you know, tenaciously pursuing God's call on your life to the point where you miss him entirely. Or maybe it's our own resistance to the greater thing. Maybe the greater responsibility means putting the lesser responsibilities in their place, sacrificing me time or just letting go of control. See, the Pharisees saw such a small picture when, when they were standing in front of something monumental, God himself. Instead of looking towards the image of God, they were obsessed with a coin. They missed the greater responsibility. The scripture says they marveled at him. They were speechless at his response. There was no eruption from the crowd, no arrest, just silence and awe at Jesus' response. So now after this encounter, Jesus has another run-in with a group called the Sadducees. To give you some background on them, they were a Jewish, religious, political group, basically, that were very wealthy. They held positions of power among the religious elites. And unlike the Pharisees, and the scribes, they didn't believe in any form of the resurrection of the dead. 
So they come to Jesus with this absurd question, which is both a trap for him and a taunt to those who believe in the resurrection. So look with me starting at verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, then died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven have had her as wife. So just a little explanation here. There's a command in Deuteronomy that's called the leverate law. And and leverage just comes from the Latin word for brother. You don't need to worry about it much. But um, So this law says that a brother should marry his brother's widow if she has no child. And that sounds weird to us, right? Some wives here are like, yeah, I'm all set with my brother-in-law. No thanks. I mean, this is one of those laws for, for the nation of Israel. It was formed for the nation of, it was given to the nation of Israel as they formed out of pagan nations. And their laws and their practices were meant to separate them from, from the pagan nations and meant to show um, that they had a different God. And they were usually more merciful because of that. So it's not a law for here and now, in that, um, but in that place and time, a widow or an unmarried woman was as good as dead. Without the protection and provision of a male, there really was no hope for survival. And in some surrounding pagan nations, that was just the way it was. It was like, good luck to you. You know, you're destitute now. This law is designed to, one, protect the widow from destitution, and two, provide a legacy for the dead brother. I mean, it would be a bizarre law for today, but it was a fix for rougher times uh, that protected women and prevented, like, that ending of a family line. So now we've got that out of the way. Let's just look at what the Sadducees are asking Jesus. So this process of leveret marriage has occurred six times, and this poor hypothetical woman has been married to seven different men. They want to know if everyone meets at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I mean... That would be a pretty awkward reunion, right? Like she gets there and seven men are like, wifey. So Jesus says to them, let's look at his response. He says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There's no greater insult than that to a religious leader, let me tell you. If someone came to me and said those words, that would just be one of the greatest insults you could give me. Like after this sermon, you said, that, that sermon shows that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I'd be like, man, I have to do some introspection. But, and, and from Jesus himself, I mean, imagine. So let's keep reading in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus tells them that their whole question is wrong for two reasons. One, they don't know the scriptures. And two, they don't know the power of God. And he's going to address the second one first, the power of God. So they're probably assuming that Jesus believes what the Pharisees believe because they believed in resurrection too. Uh, But they believed in a materialistic 
resurrection, which means that any defects of the physical body or earthly relationships would continue on in the resurrected state into eternity. Jesus is talking about something much greater than that. Jesus is talking about a greater reality. Jesus says, we won't be married or given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels in heaven. So what does that mean? Well, first, there's no record of marriage between angels in heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about it. So that's the most obvious. But, but let's also ask, where are angels and what do they do? I mean, angels are in the presence of God. And they serve God and they worship him. Heaven, eternity, the resurrection, these are not simply continuations of our life here. They're new. It's new. The resurrection is new. In Revelation 21.5, King Jesus is sitting on his throne, which rests on a new earth below a new sky. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. So God isn't caught off guard by marital conundrums. They don't even apply. It's like at the end of Back to the Future. Hopefully a lot of you have seen that movie. Um, but Doc returns from, uh, yeah, he returns to present day from the past. And, and he tells Marty, like, you need to go to the future because your family's in trouble. And he's like, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get to 88 miles per hour. And Doc responds, Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And then the car just flies off. So Jesus is pointing to the greater reality, something that they are having trouble even conceiving, where God's power overcomes our condition. So now some of you might be like, wait, I like being married. I don't want to lose my spouse in the resurrection. I mean, there's not a ton of information on this in the Bible, but again, what we know is that there's a greater reality and there's no want on a restored, perfect earth with restored humanity, which means restored relationships and in the very presence of God himself dwelling with us. This is the greater reality. So it's not so hard for us to miss it, right? It's not so hard for us to focus on the lesser thing and miss the greater thing. So after addressing their misunderstanding about the power of God, Jesus addresses their misunderstanding of Scripture, and he points to a very familiar passage. Let's look at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. So one, of the Sadducees, one thing the Sadducees were known for was uh, they would place the books of the Pentateuch above all the rest of Scripture. And if you're wondering what the books of the Pentateuch are, you can just look at the first five books in your Bible, and, and those are them. Um, and so some people even say that that's all that they believed, and that the reason why they were anti-resurrection is because the resurrection was never explicitly mentioned in those books. Well, Jesus today points to a passage that they certainly would have believed to show that it is in there. So when God says to Moses that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's doing is pointing to figures that were used to remind Moses of God's covenant love, God's relationship with these figures. And, and God's relationship continues. 
He remains their God. So if that's true, how could they be non-existent? God's covenant supersedes death, and Jesus is pointing to a greater reality. So their marriage conundrum reveals their small view of God's power and their denial of the resurrection of continued life with God is a misunderstanding of God's covenant love to his people. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And I just love the way that he ends that conversation when he just says, you are quite wrong. Just like a nice cap to that. The message translation reads, you are way, way off base. So Jesus keeps pointing us to what's greater. And for the Pharisees, this was the greater responsibility. For the Sadducees, it's the greater reality. Now let's see what he's going to point to in this third interaction. Look with me at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is is the most important of all? Can we just take a minute and... Think about how exhausting this must be for Jesus. I mean, he's God, yes, but he took on human flesh, human limitations. Like, this just must be tiring. Question after question, is this a trick question? Is this a trap? I'm convinced that one of the great services that Jesus did when he was on earth is answer people's dumb questions. (laughs) People who didn't even deserve an answer. Um, But he gave his time to them. Okay, let's move on to verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So the first commandment Jesus recites is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the second is a composite of commandments that are in the scriptures of uh, Leviticus that talk about loving the insider and the outsider as yourself. And so this interaction differs from the other two, right? I mean, the scribe isn't approaching Jesus with much animosity. Uh, Look how he responds even to, to what Jesus says in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This interaction is a little bit more amicable. The scribe affirms Jesus' answer. So it looks like, you know, Jesus agrees with the scribe and the scribe agrees with Jesus. So we're good, right? They're in agreement. But then Jesus answers with this in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the scribe answered wisely, but Jesus's encouragement isn't simply an affirmation of his answer. It's a call to go further. This is almost like the rich young ruler that Clint talked about a couple weeks ago. He was rich in material wealth and even a good person, but Jesus said, You lack one thing. Give it all away and follow me. In the same way, he's talking to this guy and he's saying he's rich in theology, rich in spiritual knowledge, but he says, you lack one thing. You're still 
missing something. There's still further to go than just affirming my answer of what the greatest commandment is. You're not far from the kingdom, which is, by the way, that is a compliment. I mean, that's not something negative, but he's not there. So what's he missing? What's the greater thing that he hasn't grasped? Let's talk about those two primary commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus has put them together that way in a way that you can't separate them. You can't do one without the other. There's a reason he didn't just stop at love God. We don't get off the hook with the whole, it's just me and God thing. So what does it mean to love God with all you've got? The heart, soul, mind, and strength is really an elaboration to say, love God with all you've got. Maybe it's easier to ask what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the Pharisees and Herodians who refuse to pay to God what God is owed. They, refuse, they pursue selfishness to its ends, and they're more concerned with their power than with their relationship with God. They're shirking their greater responsibility. That's not loving God. So the opposite of that would be loving God is to recognize his lordship, to recognize his creative rights over us, our debt to him. And it's not the Sadducees who don't believe God's word or his power. They're denying the greater reality. So loving God is to believe his word, to trust his power, to trust his promises. And even this more friendly scribe has missed what it means to love God. He's missing the greater rule. Love is the greater rule. Loving God isn't simply knowing the right answers or giving him a pat on the back because he agrees with you. So how are we doing? How are you doing at at loving God? Loving God is to believe in him, to, to believe in Jesus. And then to love God is to sacrificially obey that second commandment that is inextricably intertwined with the, with the first, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The expression of the second one is a definite indicator of the condition of the first. Let me say that another way. How we sacrificially love our neighbor our fellow human being, reveals the condition of our relationship with God. How can that be? Just because I hate my neighbor doesn't mean that I don't like God. God's good. I read the Bible. I pray. I go to church. Maybe I even serve. I'd simply say that to not love your neighbor is to pursue selfishness. And selfishness is antithetical to loving God. When we're consumed with ourselves, we've got nothing left for anyone else, including God. In fact, that can even go to the point of being pathological. This is what we're seeing in these religious leaders. This is what we see in corrupt and oppressive regimes. But it's not just regimes, is it? It's us too. It affects us too. So how's your relationship with God? And how are you doing at sacrificially loving other people? So this scribe, he gets close to the right answer, but he misses the greater rule. And it's only a few verses down that we're going to see Jesus call out the scribes as a whole 
That's going to be in Clint's passage next week. Um, but he warns the crowd about them. He says, they dress in fancy garb. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. He says, they devour widows' houses. Now, maybe we've got one of the good scribes. I mean, they might not have all been that way. But Jesus is judging them as a whole, and he says they're destined for condemnation. But worst of all, three days after these encounters, two chapters away in Mark, the greatest violation of the greatest commandment is carried out by the Pharisees, the elders, and the scribes. The command says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your fellow human as yourself. These religious leaders have darkened hearts. They've been using their minds to plot murder. They've been hating Jesus with their entire being, their whole soul. And they'll eventually use the full force of their strength and power to put the God-man on the cross. But on that same day, in stark contrast to their rebellion and their hatred, Jesus performs the greatest act of sacrificial love, the greatest fulfillment of the two greatest commandments. In just a couple chapters, we'll see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in sorrow, sweating blood, asking that God would take this cup of suffering, the cup of wrath from him. But he resolves and he says to the Father in belief, not my will, but your will be done. And in our place, for our sin, he died and took our penalty. He took it for us. The ones who shirk the greater responsibility, the ones who deny the greater reality, and the ones who disobey and violate the greater rule. In the moment when the greatest act of hate is perpetrated, the greatest act of love overcame. And he was raised, resurrected on the third day. And he paved the way for all of us to be raised the same, ushering in the greater reality for those who believe in him. And we get to say, we love because he loved us first. Let's pray.